Welcome to the Cinematologist Podcast. I'm Dario Linares, pronouns he, him, and down the line is Neil Fox, pronouns he, him. Neil, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. It's sunny, life is moving on, as it always does until it doesn't, and um, <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I've woken up in a really good mood, actually, so um, I've got some sleep for a, I haven't had much sleep for a while, so yeah, feeling feeling pretty chipper. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. It's been kind of one of those weeks where I felt at the beginning, oh god, there's going to be so much to get through, and this is um, this is going to be really difficult, long hours of work. But I've reached the point where I'm I'm about to submit something for a massive deadline that's been overdue for an awfully long time, and then you know, just kind of every day has been wading through just the the, the day to day of work. But I feel like like progress is being made, and even when you know you, you you're picking up issues that you know might play on your mind about oh this is just ongoing, this is going to be difficult to solve. A lot of those have kind of got resolved this week, so it's you know it's almost kind of like feeling like you're breaking through some barriers. That's fantastic news. I'm pleased to hear that. Yeah, and those those, those weeks are always nice, aren't they? In terms of, and it always helps when the weather. I know you know, but they, I've, I've I've found a, a much closer relationship between sort of my mental health and the weather recently you know and it certainly helped in terms of the stress to have nice days oh no that 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 day of the year my favorite day of the year is when you're outside and you suddenly realize it's too warm to have a jacket on and you can take your jacket off for the first time it's like spring i'm i'm very definitely a spring person it's my sort of uh my month or my season i should say spring dario is is here i'm I'm, I'm excited for it (laughs) indeed there's a Ozu ripoff to uh, to make there. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. So yeah, we've got a really fascinating episode ahead today. Uh, before we get into that, just wanted to mention that we've had um, a, a, we've got a new Patreon and uh, some some new reviews. Yeah, welcome to uh, Clayton Hayes. Thanks very much for joining as a, uh, a Patreon subscriber at two pound a month. Obviously. If you listen to the show regularly and you want to support us, please consider joining us on on Patreon. We have the the monthly newsletter, which is as soon as I get around to the uh, the my recommendations, which are coming in the next day or so, then the March newsletter will go out. But also, you get access to our our bonus episodes, which we're going to tape one straight after this, so it will be a kind of after party episode. Neil has got a few reviews to talk about, and he also you also want to ask me a, a bit about Berlin, so you might get some behind the behind the scenes berlin anecdotes that's the hope yeah i've got a couple of particular things i wanted to ask you after listening to your your brilliant missives that you sent uh through the patreon feed but but we're open to everyone so if, if you haven't heard dario's a sort of mini reviews um and sort of accounts of, of, of his time in Ber- at the berlinale then check out our patreon feed for that free content um, which hopefully will inspire you to uh, sign up for the uh, the stuff that's not not free um and yeah you mentioned a couple of reviews on itunes yeah yeah so we had two new five-star reviews, one from Adam Park, who is, uh, I know, is someone who follows us on social media, so I know him. So thanks to Adam. And also um, a review from Keep Art Evil, which is a sentiment I whole, wholeheartedly agree with. But both of them, I think, were really nice reviews because they, they totally got what we do in terms of the, the podcast is grounded in our academic backgrounds and we like to think that we're in-depth 
in our approach to the medium in all forms, but also we try to make it as accessible and passionate and, you know, entertaining as we possibly can. Um, so thanks very much for those reviews, guys. And anybody else, you know, it really is nice to to have those reviews up on, on iTunes or any podcatcher app or indeed anywhere that you might review us or, or have, have said that you've enjoyed an episode on social media or anywhere else. Just draw our attention to it and we will uh, we'll, we'll probably talk about it like this on the show indeed indeed we will yeah and it's interesting you mentioned sort of in-depth and accessible but uh, trying to kind of always kind of open our open our ears um, and, and and thoughts to to sort of new areas of cinema and new areas of, sort of film thinking that's exactly what today's episode has in store yeah I was contacted by a um, friend of the podcast so Mayer who brought us the the raising films episode and they're a writer, an activist, and a, a general champion of all areas of equality and diversity, but not just in the keyboard warrior sense. You know, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but they are somebody who organizes and intervenes on policy, someone who walks the walk for effective change, I think, in, in, in so many different areas. I really appreciate So's work on that. And, you know, a great writer as well as we um, they trail their uh, some of their work in the interview, but they put me in touch with uh, Toki Allison, who works for Inclusive Cinema and Film Hub Wales, and together they have developed and designed and put on a series of live events called TLC, Tender Loving Care for Trans-Led, Trans-Loved Cinema, and there's a there's an online space which I think is a kind of all-encompassing hub for events and discussions and articles and all sorts of things that bring together the, the subject of trans identities and trans policies and experiences with, with cinema, I, I think. And I think it's grounded on a series of screenings that have, have taken place at uh, different venues with the focus of the idea of a, a of a trans-led, trans-focused film and exhibitions that that show those films, and in the interview we discuss what that might actually mean because you know it's a, it's an interesting open question I think, but along with these screenings, so has produced a set of guidelines for good practice for cinemas and other helpful resources in terms of helping cinemas to understand both the potential concerns of a trans audience and, and trans individual audience members, and also how and why to run events in order that they are inclusive and welcoming. And the project also produced a podcast, which is kind of where we came in. So um, they got in contact with us and asked if we could talk about the podcast uh, with them, which, of course, we were delighted to do and i think it's you know for us we did, uh, discussed this before it's important to try and discuss these topics not just because they're topics de jour but actually the, the the conversations might have an impact and move outside of audience ecosystems because the great thing about podcasting is that they do feel personal and you, you do go through a labor of choosing what you want to listen to but i think it's important to try and and branch out and bring voices in, bring audiences audiences in that maybe your or bring speakers in that maybe your own audience won't have heard before. And obviously, that's that's something that we've tried to do over the years on the podcast. So the discussion that you're about to hear is me with So and also writer and critic Lillian Crawford, who introduced the film Funeral Parade of Roses from 1969, directed by Toshio Matsumoto. 
which was part of episode one of their project podcast. So I've added that to the end of uh, this discussion. Um, yeah, so that's the the, the basis of, of the episode. And uh, uh, obviously, Neil and I will discuss the interview at, at the end. But I don't know, Neil, if there's anything you wanted to add to that before we get into the interview. Uh, just that it's a really really great conversation and yeah i listened to the first episode of the tlc podcast as well which is really fascinating got some some thoughts on that um and just to add really yeah about about sort of the relationship we've built up over the years with so um on the podcast i you know feel very grateful uh for their support and sort of engagement with it with us because i think that i think they're one of the most kind of important and interesting thinkers around sort of film in the uk um in terms of how we conceptualize film as, as sort of audience members uh, and how sort of yeah particularly cinemas and exhibitors uh should be engaging with their audience i think you know a fantastic and, and and productions as well in terms of the raising films work that they've done but yeah just really great to have them back and really nice to have lillian on the on the podcast for the first time i think it's a really fascinating conversation um and i'm looking forward to sort of talking to you about it and then t- talking a little bit about funeral parade of roses yeah yeah just to echo that i was going to say this after the interview but i may as well say it now as you've sort of brought it up i, I really enjoyed and, and felt that i kind of learned something not just to, about specifics you know about experiences of translate audiences but of you know certain things that that wouldn't occur have occurred to me were made clear you know you know in, in just in in everyday life and it's it it just shows how important it is that you you listen to voices that have these completely different have completely different experiences to yourself and it's just gratifying to to know that we have that level of trust as a podcast and as two straight white men that we can handle this subject and it's nice to feel we have that that so came to us with Toki and, and and wanted to wanted to be on on our show with their with their podcast. So yeah, let's let's listen to the interview. This is me with So Mayer and Lillian Crawford. So it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the Cinematologist podcast, So Mayer, and to welcome for the first time, Lillian Crawford. Thanks very much for, for coming on to you both. It's a pleasure. Thanks, Dario. So you both have such extensive biographies as writers, teachers, critics, podcasters, activists. Um, instead of me reading out a biography for you both, maybe you could give us a version of your working public Selves. Hi, I'm Sai Mayer. I'm a member of Queer Feminist Film Curation Collective Club des Femmes, uh, although we are British, not French. And I was a co-founder of Raising Films, a campaign and community for parents and carers in the UK film industry. I've written some stuff about film, I think. Uh, most recently, a book called A Nazi Word for a Nazi Thing about why standing against queer and trans cinema is fascism. Great. And also read uh, Political Animals, the new feminist cin- cinema is definitely worth uh, uh, reading. It's uh, one of the other one of yours that I've, I've read. Uh, Lillian? Um, hello, I'm Lillian Crawford. I'm a freelance film critic and writer um, for places like Sight and Sound, Little White Lies, Empire, uh, BBC Culture, um, 
yeah, that's mostly what I do. I also host a podcast called Listen to Lillian, which um, so has recently been on talking about all things Margaret Tate and Sally Potter, which was um, wonderful. Um, and I'm a co-host of the Autism Through Cinema podcast. Great. Uh, we'll link to all of that stuff in the show notes. So if you want to read and listen to So and Lillian some more after this, then you'll have the, the place to go. So you guys have come on to talk about... Um, I, I want to get the, the the title right, you know, in its entirety. So I'll I'll say TLC, aka Tender Loving Care for Trans Led Trans Loved Cinema. So that's the entirety of it there. And yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to come over to you to describe the project, but this absolutely vital project, I think, in terms of developing and opening and creating spaces spaces for trans focused film events i think is probably a, a summary that, I, that i've read when I'm, I'm looking at the website but i don't know do you want to talk a little bit about the development of the project how it came to be obviously it's probably come out of conversations in your communities that, that you've been talking about for a long time i would Im- imagine it really it did begin in a conversation uh it began in a conversation with the queer film network queer film festival network which is dormant now but was um really quite active pre-pandemic as a way of exchanging information ideas practices and it was a conversation really about best practice and safety safety for filmmakers for speakers for programmers and for cinema staff after a number of incidents that happened in 2017 and 18 involving confrontations with transphobes and it became clear that this was an urgent matter of physical safety Uh, it wasn't just some abstract ideological difference that could be expressed through discourse it was actually an issue of physical threat and physical safety and there were lots of good ideas in the discussion but towards the end of the second lockdown when people were returning to cinemas it became clear that the threat hadn't been mitigated or navigated away from and more solutions were needed and at the same time we'd seen amazing practices developed during lockdown around hybrid events that made things more accessible to people provided safe spaces where people might feel safer more engaged more able to contribute and express themselves and we wanted to bring together both of those practices of mitigation and celebration and what happens when you ask me to title a project is i come up with a holding pun and somehow it just gets stuck. So TLC was a shorthand for the feeling we wanted the project to have, to evoke joy and wit and care. Uh, But it, it does also stand for what the project is, which is both films that trans viewers love and having trans curators, programmers, speakers, uh, even maybe heads of cinema one day in positions of leadership. Um, And Toki Allison at Inclusive Cinema said that she wanted to pursue this and she wanted to pursue ways of making it hybrid. So it became both a series of live events and now a podcast. And Lillian was our first speaker. In the, in the guidance notes and in the first episode of the podcast that we're going to hear an excerpt from, there is this question of what is a trans film? And 
how is that defined in the eye of a trans viewer? And, you know, in, in film studies, we could talk about the, the, the sort of established concept of queer reading. But I just wondered, maybe, maybe Lillian, you could talk a little bit about what, what you consider a, a trans film or how, what are the boundaries of that? Yeah, um, that's something that I've sort of given a lot of time and thought to because I think that when you're introduced to what a trans cinema would be or a queer cinema or any kind of cinema that is specifically for a certain group of people, it's not simply about the fact that these people are being shown represented on screen. Because actually, if we look at trans cinema as the history of the representations of trans people in cinema, it's broadly very negative. So actually, it's more about sort of looking at films from a sensibility, um, from an aesthetic, and what that might mean to trans people. So that couldn't be, for example, the film that I chose for um, the screening when Rebecca Del Tufo asked me to choose the film. I chose, um, I, I gave her a number of films, in, including um, Bound by the Wachowski sisters, which again, doesn't have any trans people in it. Um, I also chose the film that we went for, which was Funeral Parade of Roses, um, which again, does does have a sort of, does have an element of transness to it within the actual content of the film. But it's more about what an aesthetic of transness might look like. Um, and I think that these are questions that are very interesting and also mean that you don't then constantly sort of throw back at people a very negative or potentially triggering version of what transness looks like. You can you can find films which are more positive um, than something like, I don't know, The Danish Girl, which is probably one of the most heinous examples that I can think of. I mean, it's interesting there that the idea of the the aesthetic and that is sort of more complex and more deep really than than the idea of just, let's say, uh, a, a trans-led narrative. You know, it's you're you're almost sort of talking there about the the idea of that the way a film is edited, put together, shot, might have a particular kind of aura that that is outside of the mechanics of say mainstream heteronormative uh, aesthetics in the, in in that sense. But I don't know. Is there sort of uh, a, a specifics around that that you could kind of point point to? I know it's the, it's quite an intuitive thing, maybe. Well, I think I think I think the beauty of it and the reason why there's a transness to it is that there isn't a specificity to it. That it is something that is based entirely in sort of in feeling and sensibility. Um, I mean, I mentioned earlier that I do a, an autism through cinema podcast as well, which is about sort of looking at how autism might manifest itself in films. And actually, again, it's mostly films which resonate with myself as an autistic person or other people who are autistic and why they respond to it that way and why they feel that elements of their experience are being represented in the films that we're talking about. And I think that's the same. The reason why it's so important that it is trans people or people who identify as trans or have transitioned or whatever within that scope, um, that that these are people who are talking about films and looking at films that resonate with them on a level which a cis person would not necessarily be able to pick up on without having the conversations from trans people around why that film resonates with them. Um, Because actually, if you talk to a lot of trans people, the films that they're going to say um, resonated with them or gave them a sort of sense of themselves as trans people, they're not going to be films necessarily, often films like Boys Don't Cry or Girl or 
I don't know, Silence of the Lambs for God's sake, you know, these aren't the films that people are going to mention as the films which resonated with them. If anything, they're more likely to be films that sort of made them feel bad about themselves. And that's where the sort of TLC tender loving aspect comes from, is trying to find these films which might give a positivity to the framing. I want to give a shout out to um, the scholar Eliza Steinbock yeah. as well for their book, Shimmering Images, which... Um, <clears throat> which is where a lot of these ideas come from, I should say. <laughs> which aligns beautifully with how Lillian has been drawing out these ideas. And one of the other things that Eliza talks about in their book, that often the um, images or aesthetic and aesthetics, the combination of image and aesthetic that um, a trans viewer might encounter that makes them feel held might be outside of mainstream fiction feature cinema. So whether it's in experimental cinema, porn, scientific documentary, that one of the things that the idea of trans cinema opens to us is looking transversely across the screen at these other different uh, manifestations that are often left out of histories and studies of industrial cinema. And I think now streaming TV and video games are very much part of that transverse experience as well of different encounters, often in places where images are moving differently than in the very fixed narrative structures of Hollywood and Hollywood-esque feature films. Again, as, as well, there's a kind of implicit critique, I think, of, of the way in which, you know, if we're talking about if, if we think that cinema works on, a, on an ideological level, those images and representations that we've seen in the past that are highly problematic, it's a way of undoing that shaping, I think, and that the problematic education that may have come out of those, you know what I mean, for want of a better word. And, and, and I suppose that's part as well. You know, in the first uh, episode, um, I think Jay talks about we're still in the formative stages of a trans-led cinema. And I think that that's a really interesting point because the combination of the representation, but also the mechanics of how films are made and who makes them and how they get developed is obviously both of those things are, are kind of in tandem in this in, in this project as a holistic thing, you know? Absolutely. And I think in some ways we are in, we're in early stages of how we're, discussing it and forming it as a community now but trans cinema has existed as long as cinema has existed the problem is that we have a tendency i've coined this word and i'm going to use it obsessively i'm sorry to insistibilize which is that looking back at history dominant culture goes well everyone was cis and straight as a default obviously they all were so therefore the history of cinema is cis and straight and one of the most mind-blowing encounters for me was reading Eisenstein's letter, Sergei Eisenstein. Yes, that person who invented montage and all of the first stuff to stand against that kind of narrative cinema, describing themselves in a letter to Magnus Hirschfeld, the, the professor of sexology, as being, well, the word at the time was bisexual, which meant something close to what we might say as non-binary or androgynous or genderqueer or gender non-conforming. You know, we don't, the, the words aren't parallel, but Eisenstein says, you know, as a good um, socialist, as a good communist, my gender is like a Hegelian synthesis. And that's how he explains it. And he says, you know, Hegel was like that as well. 
And he never, or they never got to follow up on this in terms of their filmmaking, really. But what happens to our history of of, of film if we say, well, actually, trans cinema starts with Eisenstein? And we look at Strike and Potemkin as films that are also exploring Hegelian syntheses of, of gender, working towards different ways of being embodied in, in the world from that. And so we're, because of the repressive forces of history, we're also at really early doors for understanding the archive of film. Um, even where, you know, films have explicitly trans characters or trans participants, that's often been written out of the archive or suppressed. And we're just really recovering um, and re-understanding that information. So it's both early doors in terms of practices as we engage them now and a lot of that work of understanding a long history of cinema. But, you know, I want to put it out there. Eisenstein, the first trans filmmaker. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's kind of like talking about, as Lillian mentioned, sort of the the aesthetics of trans. There's there's a sense in, in which you could even go back to that, the idea of the very mechanics of what film does in constructing a world. You know, at its very fundamental level is is a, a, a you know an idea that that can be aligned with that that notion of what is the self? How do we construct anything? No, I was just going to follow on from that by by saying that I think it is interesting in terms of sort of retrospective analysis of films, and that you can reframe the way that we look at them. And I think that that's that's really important, and sometimes that's invited in the example that that So says about. Um, Eisenstein, but also, I mean, most famously sort of in a recent example that I mentioned with Bound and the Wachowskis is that um, Lily and Lana Wachowski um, have sort of really welcomed a conversation of looking back at their films after their transitions um, to see them in a different way. And there's a very good book by Carl Keegan um, on the Wachowskis through that framework, starting with Bound and moving forwards and looking at I think I think what's really important is that, as you say, the medium itself is able to capture a sense of transness in a way that is fluid and is being explored. And the languages that we use, and if you read, like in my introduction to Funeral Parade of Roses, that the words are so different and the way that that is malleable is really important in terms of identifying a trans cinema because it's not necessarily trans in the sense that we mean when we say it today as it was in the past. And as I say, the Wachowskis films are really fascinating to go back to and look at through that framework. And I think that it's actually possible to do that, even where the people making it might be seen as very much, as you say, sort of heteronormative cis, that we can still find elements within their films that that do resonate from the actual material of the film itself and the way that it's being constructed. In terms of the project and its functional elements let's say in helping venues and helping with exhibition and those kinds of policy decisions and just what are best practices in terms of putting on trans-specific events what are the some of the challenges that venues face or have faced that you're you know really trying to help them with i think the challenges divide into a few groups. So one is the set of challenges that all venues face with all programming that falls outside what they consider their normal, their bread and butter, which might be internal hesitancy around whether a film will earn out, will it sell enough tickets, 
another kind of internal hesitancy around do we know the right speakers to invite? Is this an area in which we feel confident to operate? Which is often a sign that a venue needs to diversify its staff team, um, not just by hiring a freelancer for one season, but by ensuring that their staff team reflects the communities that they're programming for. Um, I always remember something that Umar Khan Mohammed wrote in a, a blog for the Independent Cinema Office, which is that it's not that there are hard to reach communities, it's just that you're not making them feel welcome. So venues face very similar challenges whenever they're moving outside of what has been the dominant strands of programming in this country. And some of those challenges are to do with a lack of funding support for really risk-taking, community-oriented programming for things like having um, community member programming committees or young programming committees. Some of the challenges are also infrastructural, by which I mean venues are buildings and not every building can afford to um, rebuild to include ramps and gender inclusive toilets. All new buildings should be including them. And as Jay and Alice say in the first episode, it's not that difficult to put a sign on the door of one toilet saying, for this screening, we're gonna try out this being a gender inclusive toilet, please respect that. And if it works, think about ways to manage that in the building, which may also lead to more trans staff and freelancers feeling like they want to work in your community centre cinema. Um, And it's surprising how many of the major cinemas in the UK have done nothing uh, around questions of just infrastructural access. I was going to say, sorry, is this just, is this, uh, I'm assuming it would be much easier to work with independent venues, smaller independent venues, because, you know, the machinery of working with multiplexes and stuff like that. I mean, again, that's not an excuse or anything like that. It's just, you're always going to be coming up against the the corporate (laughs) machinery of all of that stuff. And I'm not talking about multiplexes. It's very difficult to do independent programming with multiplexes um, because their programming is all in-house and generally top down from a corporate level. But I'm talking about some of, you know, the larger regional venues and I want to give a shout out to Watersheds here who in their recent spruce up of the venue have increased its physical accessibility and changed their provision of uh, toilets and services and generally really thought about making a welcoming building which is also a a working building for a number of media projects so it really is a community hub and there's something about that vibe that is really welcoming to programmers and audiences so there's a kind of what we what we try and get people to think about is how there's a positive feedback cycle where the more welcoming you make your building the more people want to come there the better audiences you have for screenings the more ideas are flowing in the building and it really is it is a positive feedback cycle there have been specific challenges around transphobic threats to screenings and to speakers. I'm not going to name them or give them any more oxygen. Um, Some of them have been very publicly reported and some of them are just actually day-to-day incidents um, that are deeply unfair on uh, staff and speakers at venues. And part of that, that problem is again it's a problem that faces any venue and any screening is that you're interacting with the public you cannot control for, i work in a bookstore you cannot control for the public what you can do is have 
a plan in place that as a venue you have an understanding of who you're prioritizing when this happens you're prioritizing audiences you're prioritizing invited speakers guests and so on you're prioritizing the people who are most vulnerable to what's occurring and then how you handle the aftermath the statement that you make as a venue the aftercare that you provide which could be as practical as saying we're going to get you a car to the station because you shouldn't have to be at risk of any sort of confrontation happening outside the venue or it could be writing a public statement that is posted on your venue website i mean the the best case scenario would be that this doesn't happen that planning and prep is so good and the venue's character is so welcoming but i know as soon as woodshed reopened they had people sticking pictures of their toilets on social media and writing nasty messages on their open pin board and you know this is a manifestation of public space that is deeply disturbing and affects the participation of anyone who is of a non-dominant embodiment Um, and it's designed to shut us out so having knowing that venues are on our side and how they express that is the most important thing and it's from small gestures like not being you know misgendered when you arrive what the copy is like on a website to you know a point that i make in the guidance notes don't assume that someone is going to be comfortable giving you their legal and banking name if you're paying them give them a heads up that's something you're asking them um so really because our society is like so stratified by infrastructure that's hard to change that's the problem it's often not bad intentions it's oh my god i haven't thought about how things are so fixed and it's just feeling comfortable with that little bit of thought that little bit of listening and as i say then it's a positive feedback cycle yeah i mean that's a really interesting point about the 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 level of awareness and i think that of well obviously that's something from a trans perspective is you know something you're just going to come up against over and over and over again and the from a from a venue perspective or that 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 sense of un, just being unaware of a certain thing is really important to listen and and accommodate that when it might not have even occurred to you to think about a particular element that may affect you know a person's experience so i think that's really that's really interesting the sort of the levels of awareness that are required in order to to make a venue you know appropriate safe all of those all of those things in in terms of the idea of a, a safe space, I know you sort of talked about that in the at the opening, which is obviously it should go without saying the idea of people being not being physically threatened or a venue being having physical protections in 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 place. Also, I think yeah, the, the, there's an allusion here to a safe space for ideas and, and discussion is just as in, in, important. I mean, w- would you agree with that? And with the polarization that we've got in society right now. How vital is that when a trans community wants to talk about about issues that the space is safe for the ideas to be discussed? I think Lillian's example of the Wachowskis films is perhaps a really key one because of the capture of some of the decontextualized memes associated with the matrix that have informed far-right formations online. So the idea that the matrix as a cultural phenomenon has these two polarized 
readings, one of which, as I say, is very decontextualized and relies on a few, like literally a few GIFs that have been fed through some kind of reverse sense generator. And then one which is to do with deeply sensed ideas that were not so much it talked about publicly but were talked about in community for a long time and now are having public and community formations through the work of people like Kale Keegan and to be able to have a space to sit not only with those ideas but to examine the cultural history of the film I don't think that I've read a single piece by a trans writer looking at the matrix who doesn't also attempt to address those far-right formations so on one side there's a lot of consideration being given to the full complexity of the film all of its historical situatedness its relationship to politics of sort of post-racialization disability politics and the Wachowski's work like really asking questions and being critical as well looking at it through the lens of the development of their work through Sense8 and then you know on the other side there's this incredibly reductive gamified you know memeified essence of something so I think sometimes when your question started I had a you know, sort of horrible vision of what the BBC seems to mean now by free speech and debate, which means bringing someone who doesn't want me to have human right on, who has a powerful position, <laughs> you know, leading some kind of organisation or, say, government, and then I'm being asked incendiary questions to justify my, my right to existence. And finding spaces that are not like that I think that you know there's this awful sort of right-wing formation of of what a safe space is like which is just a sort of pillow that you know you press your head into and sob and sometimes we actually just need that but the the rigorous rereadings the level of debate and conversation that came out in the events that you can hear on the podcast doesn't tally with that kind of oh a safe space is where no one can say anything at all these are really incisive exciting readings and discussions that it's a a space for nuance and i think that's you know maybe you could sum it up there's like one side or group or community that's like let's have some nuance but that nuance is like centered in you know, respect for bodily autonomy. And the other side is like, no, we hate nuance. Let's just have a massive statement that is centered in in hierarchical violence. So between those two, I don't think there's a, there, there is no room for debate. But within, you know, what is designated a safe space is often it's a safe space for, for complexity, for sitting with things, for sitting with really difficult questions and for joy and a joy in kind of that intellectual wrangling which can provoke a lot of laughter. You'll hear a lot of laughter on the podcast. People really delighted to encounter ideas or be given formulations for things that they were like, I kind of felt this, but Lillian's, Lillian's got it. Yeah, I think the the discursive aspect of this is, is, is what's so important. I mean, I what a lot of my work actually is it now is more to do with sort of relaxed spaces, safe spaces for neurodivergent people. Um, and so I run a number of, well, help run a number of relaxed screenings at the BFI and we have an introduction before the film and we have an hour's discussion after the film. And I think that that structure works really well, that people who feel comfortable doing so can come and talk about it. So you have someone who's leading it, someone who when you, you know, if, if you have someone who is trans or someone who is autistic in, in that environment, 
leading the conversation, it can immediately say, look, you, you if you identify in some way that is similar to this, then you feel safe in that environment, that the actual conversations and the programming is being led by people who you feel safe around and feel safe talking to, and then having those discussions. Because really, what's so important is that those discussions don't take on a combative element, that it should just sort of be presumed that you will be able to make your voice heard and that what you're saying isn't going to just be sort of rejected outright because a lot of what we're talking about is about nuance and things that in the mainstream sense are very much sort of overlooked. And what's really important for venues is to just provide the space for those conversations to happen because out of those conversations, the people who are leading it, the people who are programming, the people who are sort of developing these ideas are able to take from that changes because we are th- th- this is something that there's no definitive answer we're not sort of putting down a set of guidelines in these forms of inclusive cinema which tell everyone this is how it's always it's got to work because we've got to an answer we are sort of developing these things at quite an early stage um and i think that that's really positive and the, even the screening that we did with funeral parade of roses i had such a i had no idea what to expect from that i mean i was just as i was just speaking at, at that event but it was already really interesting and also to talk for quite a long time. I mean, it was quite, an, it was an extended introduction and just to sort of sense the room, because you can always tell when you're do, introducing a film whether or not people are engaged or whether people have just immediately switched off. For example, I, I recently introduced um, a film called Lingua Franca by Isabel Sandoval, which is an absolutely stunning film, which I think is finally available on BFI Player, I'm not sure. I started talk, introducing the film at a screening and I immediately got the impression that the people just did not care what I was talking about. Um, so, And I was quite surprised by the sort of, by, by what the audience I was talking to looked like. It was just a sort of regular weekday picture house screening. So I thought, ah, oh, maybe they wouldn't like to hear the sort of the nuances of this and that's fine. Um, and I think it's great that we have these kinds of films within that mainstream. I mean, part of the, the real important thing is that we don't completely isolate groups such as trans people from the regular programming schedules. You know, this isn't about creating a safe space once a month so that people can feel safer then. It's about expanding that to making sure that people feel safe all the time. Yeah, there's there's some vital points there, I think. First of all, that idea of the safe space and how it's defined in the media, which is essentially the right-wing media in the UK, obviously, because sure. we haven't got a, a left-wing media in the UK. No. Um, <laughs> and, and the idea that if, if you don't have the most reactionary right-wing opinion available in any given space, then suddenly it's kind of like snowflakey. It just drives me insane. But then I, I think what you said there, Lillian, is really important that and that was kind of coming on to the next question of the idealized utopian endgame is that a trans person can walk into any cinema at any time and everything that and their experience is completely catered for. Because I think that again, because of that, the way that the polarization of the media works, it it's seen as the opposite. It's almost like we want to shut down everyone else and just have the the things that 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 we want that, that we want to have in the way that we want to have them. So it's it's really 
I, I, I think that articulating that in the way that you have there is, is really important. And, and it, it reminds me a little bit in the first episode where Alice sort of talks about that idea that there's a messiness of inclusion. Like, you know, not everybody in the trans community is going to agree on what an inclusive screening is, which is, you know, obvious, really, but perhaps does need need kind of stating in a, in a way. And that, that sort of brings up something else that Alice says a couple of times in the first episode where they say, never, ever just have one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what what they're referring to is don't just if you're doing a, a, sc- a screening and you want to have a panel and you want to talk about trans issues or gender issues, don't just say, well, we're going to have one trans person on the panel and there'll be no other trans people in the programming team or the star team or the building. The weight is all on you. So don't tokenize. But I think, as Lillian said, that goes for programming as well. The fact is, we have quite a lot of screening spaces still in the UK, perhaps not as many independent screening spaces as we'd like, and perhaps higher fees are not always as affordable for community spaces we'd like them to be, not all the materials we'd like to be available. Uh, You know, I would have uh, loved to travel around England screening Magnus Hirschfeld's uh, ridiculously camp documentary, Laws of Love, but it it was a one-time only screening, so no one else will get to see the shimmering moths do their dance uh, coming out of their cocoons. Um, Speaking of a trans aesthetic to cinema, so the fact is there's there's a lot of spaces, there's a lot of opportunities. So we're never ever just talking about there has to be one screening that is happening in the whole of the UK. That's it. I mean, 30 or 40 years ago, that is what it could feel like. You know, that is how the London Lesbian and Gay Film Festival felt. There was not a lot of year-round programming once the sort of community groups stopped programming at the Rio and elsewhere. And then, you know, there was the London Transgender Film Festival, which was the first festival to really, in the UK, to really phrase itself as being trans-centred and trans-led. But now, you know, there's so much happening nationally. There are so many festivals like uh, Squiff and Homotopia. There are programmers, programming groups, people working with venues, outside venues, streaming programs like Cinema of Ideas. There's lots and lots of spaces for, for I'm going to use the word again, transverse programming. But to give it, as, as Lillian was saying, really good context and really good discussion uh, in different ways to commission new writing uh, about some of these films so people have like thoughtful ways of a varied thoughtful ways of of engaging with them so i think it's the messiness is is what's fun we don't want i mean we don't want a hierarchical ossified film studies of any film or any film culture the idea that there's one authority telling us this is the film you will watch this is how you will perceive it is destructive whether that's speaking about cinema of the african diaspora or it's speaking about a national cinema like it's the plurality of perception and the space for that nuanced non-competitive additive discussion to happen but yeah, it's it's messy, it's, and it's not easy because there's not a lot of money. Sometimes I I I think if we're if we're taking the intersectional cue when we're thinking about how audiences react to certain films, you know, it, like the super avant-garde, modernist, uh, feminist films maybe appeal to those who are film studies aligned, let's say, in in, in some senses. But I think I, I would imagine, you know, you, you'll get huge amounts of interest in films that are, for want of a better word, sort of more populist or more easily ac- uh, accessible to watch and are just, are just fun. And I think that 
it should be perhaps as important to to balance those kinds of screenings out and and of course just on a on a fundamental level you may get more people in for those screenings you know no definitely i think that's a really important point i mean as i say i I gave a list of films when i sort of chose the film that i introduced and really funeral parade of roses is sort of as extraordinary a film as it is and as i'd love more people to see it it's it is in terms of sort of access to cinema you have to sort of come at it from a certain angle. I mean, this is a film not in English. It's an experimental film in black and white. You know, it requires a certain form of literacy that I don't believe that that most people might not easily respond to. But part of the reason why I wanted to choose that was because it's opening up a new form of literacy, which is really what I'm talking about, which is the way that we look at the visual grammar of cinema in a different way and the potential for that opens up. And I know people who went to see that film who would never normally go and see those kinds of films and and really responded to it and felt that my introduction really helped that in terms of sort of saying, you know, these are the aspects of the film that you might not know about the context of the film, for example, um, in Japan, in the Japanese New Wave, um, and where Toshio Matsumoto sits as, as a filmmaker. And I think that that that's really important if you are going to choose something that is more, as you say, avant-garde than something that is mainstream. But then if you put on a film like Speed Racer by the Wachowskis, then you can have an amazing discussion around that film because it works within the grammar, the, the literacy of that real sort of blockbuster mainstream, but it's doing something different and it's it's a, a film that was sort of dismissed in the same way that something like Jupiter Ascending was and failed at the box office but if you open up a different way of phrasing it and framing it to an audience and ask them can you look at it from this perspective because this is why it resonates with 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 me and and my sensibility and the way I see things then you can get you can have a very different conversation around that film and maybe because it sits within a different mode of cinema that's really important. So as you say, I, I think it's about balancing it. We're going to play your intro in just one second. I just want to ask one final question, and that's really in terms of the podcast around the project. And Lillian, you know, you've got two podcasts, so you're an experienced podcaster yourself, and so I know you've, you've done done lots of uh, podcasting work. So I don't know. I mean, you know, did you always want to sort of have that podcast series to to accompany the, the, the live events? And, you know, as I do, do you still see podcasting even though it's becoming more and more commercialized now as a sort of uh, interesting and vital um independent arena for you know discussing these ideas and and expanding communities shall i jump on that one it was always part of the idea for tlc um partially as capacity building for venues to see the advantage of having a podcast not very many um independent cinemas uh, or cultural centres in the UK are podcasting yet and I think that podcasts are a brilliant way just to keep a record, a document of all the amazing event programming that you're doing. So on the website, you'll also find a brilliant guide to podcasting your live event, uh, a challenge that Dario knows well, uh, written by Adam Smith of Aunt Nell Productions. And I would say that Adam says this in the document, I'll add that part of it is deciding how funky and DIY you prepare to be because you can just make a podcast using your soundboard, you can even just produce it using your your phones and go, this fits with our funky DIY aesthetic uh, as a venue, or you can produce something very professionalised, bringing in um, an engineer to edit it, uh, as we did with this one, um, DPF Productions. 
The idea was always that this would be hybrid, so that as well as having the opportunity for in-cinema events, which are so important, where venues are really committing, saying, yes, we're going to program this on the screen, we're going to take the gamble of getting audiences in, there would also be a record that moved that event beyond the postcode where it was happening and beyond the moment it was happening in so that other venues and audiences could listen and say, mm, actually, this is something I'd really like to do at my venue. As a film historian, I would just love all venues and curators to be archiving their events because so much that is so important happens in those introductions and discussions, even just in hearing the the excitement and joy in the room. You know, that's something we don't have a lot of good records for in cinema history. So yeah, it's documentation, it's accessibility um, through having a hybrid event. And it was a sort of skills sharing exercise for venues and contributors. And also all of those applied to this podcast. I think, you know, some of those are very specific to that. But I think podcasts still are a really great way to reach people where they are. Especially Daria and I have talked about this using audio for an, an audio visual medium where first of all, hopefully it will get people to seek out the film because they're not seeing clips of it in a recorded talk. So you're enticing them um, with brilliant descriptive language, but also it brings out the, the auditory qualities uh, of film. The fact that film is something that we listen to. I have a bit of a tear. Um, Adam and I talk about this in the film, you can't see that sound is a very embodied place uh, in cinema. It's been a very queer place in cinema. Things can happen in the soundtrack or in the gap between the soundtrack and the image track. So I think podcasts just contribute to thinking about cinema and culture in different ways. They're very intimate. Daria, I really like your description of how podcasts can use accusmètre in your interview for Movie Notebook magazine. So the fact that the podcast can play around with the kind of the audio qualities that film has um, makes them very, still for me, very vibrant. So yeah, I hope I hope they can continue as from low-cost punk DIY venue, we're interviewing our speaker on a phone to um, producing really beautiful, high-resolution, high-fidelity live event. Lillian, had you done any live event, had any live events podcast before? Yes, it's something that we've been working on with um, the Autism podcast, and I think it's... It was really interesting about where we sort of talking about conversations in safe environments is that when you do a podcast like we're doing it now in sort of over the internet and you can sort of control who's in the room, you, you can't, I mean, obviously someone could say something quite left field, which would be great, <laughs> but also um, you can sort of expect the kind of the level of knowledge and sort of position that most people are coming to when you are hosting a podcast and you sort of invite someone on to do that. Um, I think what's also really important, and it was part of the discussions that we had when we were sort of talking about the screenings and, and screenings in general, is where you put them on, because it's very London-centric, as the film world is in, in the UK, and I think that being able to sort of take an event which happened in quite a small cinema, like the Lexi, for example, where we did Funeral Parade of Roses, and being able to sort of transmit that almost into other places and other venues and that people can listen to that introduction and then watch the film because the film is i believe available to to stream in in multiple ways now i mean i first saw it through movie i think um a few years ago and i just think that that's a really important way that the podcasts are able to be to be used yeah i i haven't had so much with the with the live events 
but I, I think it's something that I'm very keen to explore in the future. It definitely introduces variables. Yeah, 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 big time. Yeah, it's one of the big uh, challenges, I think, when we've done live stuff, that the quality of the audio can just be so variable that, and it can just go badly wrong. You know, we've had, we've had a couple of events that just we didn't put out because the audio was so terrible. I just, I'd love to put a plea out um, in the hopes that, you know, the, the people who funded TLC are listening. And I want to say thank you to, it was uh, BFI fan funded via Inclusive Cinema, which is a multi-year project based at Film Hub Wales. The fact that we're having to talk about this and we're talking about infrastructure and we're talking about people being anxious about funding support is that funding applications for film events in this in England, it's different in Scotland, you cannot apply for access funding. So when you're making a funding application, it has to include what are considered added extras, such as being able to record your stream, being able to caption BSL, uh, and so on, perhaps having additional infrastructure in the venue, additional security, making you know additional spaces. I would really like to see funding applications include separate access support where it's just recognized if you're doing a live event with a speaker, the funding will pay for a, a BSL interpreter. If you are a venue that's planning to a lot of events, the funding includes buying a Zoom recorder that plugs into your soundboard um, and perhaps some audio engineering. I think there's such a simple way to take this from, as we've we've all said, being so much work often for someone who's coming in to do one freelance event and is educating a venue and the venue are educating themselves. Have that being, you know, transmitted centrally as part of the remit for a standard you know, if you are applying to us to do a live event, we expect you to have a BSL interpreter paid at the standard rate or above. You know, the messaging could be so different. And then the messaging of the positive feedback cycle of being welcome is coming from the biggest organisations that set the standards for our community and not from individuals who are making freelance rates for doing one event. I mean, I'm really, really proud of the work that we did. and I'm really proud of how it sits in Inclusive Cinema, which has been an amazing project, which has just been sadly closed down, ironically. But I think... The people who need to listen, it's not just heads of venue or heads of programming. This really needs to be heard at the top and it needs to come throughout. It needs to be a standard that is set across programming in England. As I say, Scotland is doing great. Here, here. Um, thank you very much to both of you for com- coming on. It's been absolutely fantastic. Um, we'll go to Lillian's introduction to Funeral Parade for Roses right now, but it was really wonderful to have you both on and, and to discuss these uh, these subjects and to have this on for our, our audience I think is really really important so thanks again thank you thank you good evening Thank you, Rebecca, and also thank you to Rosie Greatrex for organising the screening. Thanks to the Lexi for inviting me to select a film which not only resonates with me and the forms of cinema that I'm interested in, in terms of queerness and transness, but also something that I wanted to be able to share with others and to show you a form of filmmaking that perhaps we don't often see. When I was first asked to present this screening, 
I was thinking of perhaps doing something quite modern, something which looks at transness within a contemporary context, but something that I find most frustrating perhaps in the way that we look at cinema and the history of cinema is how transness doesn't really have an established canon in the same way that we talk about other forms of, of cinema as created predominantly by white, cis, heterosexual men. So Funeral Parade of Roses is the film that we are going to be watching this evening. And the thing that I'd particularly like us all to pay attention to is the aesthetic of transness and the aesthetic of queerness that the film uses and invites us to, to, to look through. Just out of personal curiosity, how many of you have actually seen the film before? Okay, lovely. There are a few of you, but most of you haven't, which is what I was hoping for when I chose this film, because it's, it's, it's a way of seeing that I would really like to share with you. And I hope that people who have seen the film before are going to see it in a different light. This is a, the restored version from the BFI from a few years ago, so it's presented in glorious 4K. So I hope that you, you enjoy revisiting it in this, in this lovely setting. First of all, I'd like to issue a content warning for this film. This isn't something that is often done at these sorts of introductions, but this is quite an intense film, just to warn you. There's a lot of violence in it, particularly sort of, there, there are forms of queerphobia and transphobia depicted within the film. There's also very dated forms of language. I mean, this comes with the territory. This is a 1969 film and... The, the translations of labels that we would use perhaps to define trans people are different now to how they would have been in the 1960s. So there are nightmarish ideas sort of within this film, but I also hope that it offers a form of queer utopia really in, in its use of imagery and the community that it depicts. So when I talk about labels, one of the main labels that you'll notice in the film that's used is a term of gay boys rather than trans women. And there's a series of interviews intercut throughout the film which blur these ideas of documentary and experimental cinema, but it's, it's trans women from the 1960s talking about themselves alongside this sort of mythologized form of narrative, which is taken directly from Sophocles' Oedipus Rex, which is the framework for the film. And if you're familiar with the, with the story of that, then you'll, you'll, you'll be able to identify those themes throughout the film. But here, that desire is the, the desire to become the mother rather than necessarily to have sex with the mother, which is a sort of play around with Freud that's, that sort of moves beyond Freudian analysis of, of, of Oedipus. Also, do be sure to look out for some posters for Pier Paolo Pasolini's film, the Italian film version of Oedipus Rex, there's the film poster for the Japanese release of that film, which is in a scene, so do, do keep an eye, on, eye out for that, which establishes a connection to European cinema, which is something that I think is particularly fascinating in this film, is the influence of other modes of experimental cinema from other forms of new wave. This is a film in the late 60s of the Japanese New Wave, there's references throughout to the French New Wave, to the Nouvelle Vague, the films of Jean-Luc Godard, for example, but also to films like Vera Kitalova's Daisies from three years before in 1966, particularly in sort of some of the use of phallic imagery and, and fruit. So at the centre of the film, we have a character called Eddie, who is played by an actor called Peter. And 
she identifies in this film and at the time as as one of these gay boys but she took her name from Peter Pan because of the tight clothing that she was wearing and the way that the gendered form of presentation that she had at the time and it's actually her and her friends sort of taking part within the film so it's actually a real community within 1960s Tokyo that the film is set around. At the heart of this in the film is the Bar Genet, which is named after the the French gay poet and writer Jean Genet, who one of my favourite artworks that he created was a short film called Un Chant d'Amour, which is about a prison with two gay men in two cells. I'm sure some of you have probably seen this film. It's something of a, a queer classic. And there's this gorgeous scene where two of the prisoners are swinging a rose between the two cells outside of the window between them. And the term roses in the title, Funeral Parade of Roses, is sort of a reference to, to the queer characters themselves and the imagery that is used throughout the film is, is, is an explicit reference to France and philosophical and literary scene within France at this time. The film was shot during 1968 when communist ideas were particularly prevalent in Europe and particularly in France and the existentialist ideas that were particularly prominent at the time. The film opens with a quote from Charles Baudelaire's Les Fleurs de Mal, and it's a quote about how when we harm others, we also harm ourselves, which in French is, which translates differently in different versions. I'm not sure what the subtitle is going to say, but it roughly translates to, I am the wound and the blade, I am the cheek and the slap. And I think that in terms of these screenings and, and the the forms of sort of queer consciousness and social consciousness for others that we want to to think about and celebrate particularly in these screenings is is something that the film is going to be teaching to us in in, in terms of how when we don't protect our own we end up harming ourselves at large that form of social consciousness is also prevalent throughout the film in other ways you'll notice that there are scenes of a real street performance art group called Zero Jigen, who are performing these happenings about the climate crisis, very much sort of tying in with with contemporary forms of art and, and, and contemporary consciousness around, in this case, around the clean air in Tokyo. And these were all shot without permit. These are real documentary scenes in the film, effectively, a guerrilla form of filmmaking that, that as I said earlier, comes out of the Nouvelle Vague in France and, and into the Japanese new wave. The experimental style that the director, Toshio Matsumoto, uses is developed from his earlier documentary films. So it's an intersplicing of this sort of, as I said earlier, the, the mythology of Oedipus Rex, but also with the earlier films that he made about the stone injury for, industry, rather, for example, and, and weaving industries. Try to reframe the way that we look from a community with also the traditional style of Talking Heads documentary, which we also see in the film. And sort of the, the, it's sort of like a melting pot, really, is what I'm trying to get at in terms of how all of these aesthetics are brought together to create a new one, one that we haven't seen before by taking established styles, but breaking them down to present a form of queer cinema or trans cinema, as I'm trying to argue and ask you to reflect upon when you're watching the film is how by breaking down not just the binaries of, of society and social ideas, but also the binaries of filmmaking and the styles of filmmaking that we're accustomed to when we watch films. The opening scene of the film particularly exemplifies this, particularly in terms of 
modes of trans cinema and sort of the archetypes and stereotypes that we come to associate with with sort of traditional or later forms of, of trans cinema, these close-ups and interrogations of the body. We open with this shot, uh, this scene after the Baudelaire quote, which is a very sensual act between Eddie and a male character. It remind, It's very reminiscent of the 1964 adaptation of Kobo Abe's Woman in the Dunes. And the way that the camera cuts and, and shows these close-ups of Eddie's sex, secondary sexual characteristics is almost like a form of interrogation. And there are other cliches, I suppose, what we have come to know as, as cliches, such as the use of mirrors as a reflection of trans people looking at their bodies and, and sort of having this, this radical form of relatability that the film tries to depict. But in all, by doing so, the idea is, as I said, to dissect that and to take it apart. And there are these scenes in the Barjanet when the bodies are blurring together, that these, these, these sexual characteristics no longer matter, that we're seeing bodies intertwining and creating this sense of euphoria that I think really comes across strongly during those sequences. So these ideas are what I'd like you really to think about when we're watching the film now the legacy of, of the film and its ties to contemporary forms of filmmaking and the forms of filmmaking that we might see in depicting transness and queerness within cinema that we create today. There are scenes within the film which make mockery of gendered bathrooms. There are scenes, farcical scenes of women, cisgender women and trans women fighting against each other in sped up scenes which went on to inspire Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, particularly the sort of sped up threesome scene to the William Tell Overture, which was released two years after Funeral Parade of Roses. So I'd like you to think about those, those images and how we think about them in terms of trans cinema today. Thank you very much. I hope that you really enjoyed the film. Hello, Jimmy. Come on, Eddie. So thanks once again to So Lillian and Toki for participating and, and setting that up and, and bringing the subjects uh, to us, which were we were delighted about. Neil, so yeah, what were some of your thoughts coming out of the interview and then, you know, anything else you want to go to in terms of the, the, the films? The, the, I, I really enjoyed the conversation and I thought it was interesting what you sort of said before about sort of learning and as I was listening to the interview and then and also listening to the the first episode of the TLC podcast, I was thinking about the kind of the importance of podcasts in in this space of film. I'll call it film culture, specifically around trans identity. I think, but but certainly, I think it's the, the, one of the lovely things about the TLC podcast is it is a kind of blueprint for for other areas where issues around accessibility and inclusivity are are really important in terms of where exhibitors and venues need to go and that's that there is I think and you sort of talked about a kind of a hesitancy you know almost a kind of anxiety about putting on trans events inviting trans speakers and more broadly in terms of non-binary identities and, and sort of queer identities as well but listening to the interview and and the podcast is a really accessible way of kind of feeling less anxious 
about about doing this stuff I think which I think is a really important facet of podcasting and what I mean by that is that if you write a set of guidelines and you send it to a venue and say here's something that you should consider doing it can often put people in an anxious position I think you know because if there's a there's a formality to it which almost feels didactic whereas when you listen to so and Lillian talk about it there's such a fluidity of ideas and there's the real sense that we're at the start of this and that there's no there's no kind of judgment coming from the trans community which is kind of amazing considering a lot of the persecution they have to put up with it, it it's they're trying to open up a dialogue about about how to be inclusive to, to to venues and exhibitors and programmers which i think is really fascinating and you do get the sense listening to them talk so and, and lillian that they're kind of excited and want to make these spaces kind of a really dynamic space um as well as a really inclusive space and i think that the podcasting approach just can do that in a way that, that, that a lot of writing can't um so i think it's it's a really important resource and i and i thought that hearing so talk about it you know podcasting being a place to kind of experiment with audio and create a kind of audio accompaniment that sits alongside both the event and the film within the event and also as a document of you know as an archive for events uh, and projects is is really good but i think the accessibility of the form as well in terms of creating a space for people to listen to and understand okay i can go to this with good faith and it's going to be a, a it's going to be a really yeah sort of two-way conversation about what we do i think is is so important and so that was that was really nice to to hear no that's a key point i think and as i said at the beginning i have a deadline and one of my deadlines is writing a book about podcasting so i'm kind of in that mode of thought about what podcasting is and what podcasting does and with this it just it really sort of reiterated to me just how problematic at two ends of the spectrum you know social media on one end and then a lot of journalism a lot of the media traditional media whether it's television or print journalism is in articulating narratives around trans and it's funny because on the one hand you know social media is great because it gives people a platform to have a conversation but the conversations tend to be very extreme that manifest on social media so it's often personal often really problematic even violent types of commentary let's say on these kinds of areas and then the onus is on you know, somebody, you know, within a, within a certain community to defend that or push back on that. And then they're going to have to take all the abuse and all, all the carry on. But and then on the other hand, you know, if you go to the traditional media, it's kind of like this, this sort of sense of balance, which it, it doesn't seem to work anymore, where you get two people on the who tend to be on completely polar opposite sides of an argument, so that some kind of some kind of antagonism takes place, right? And I think, as you say, I think podcasting is just set up so differently to have conversations in a much more productive way. And I know that there are podcasts that don't do that, but I think it is such an interesting and useful space where you can actually, and, and the, the, you know, the sort of parasociality of it, you know, the idea that that listeners, they're deciding to listen to something and therefore they're, they're, in doing that, they've made that choice. It's not just presented there for them that they're open to that implicitly leads to a kind of openness of what they're going to what they're going to hear and again I'm not kind of trying to be naive here people I've done it myself you turn off if something doesn't speak to you specifically but I think that the 
it is such an interesting medium in the current sort of digital moment or, or over the last 10, 15 years in, in terms of how it has promoted a certain type of conversation. It's the space where that kind of negotiation happens in its, in its, in its best form, I would say. Mm, yeah, agreed. You know, it, it is the cultivated space for hearing people think a lot of the time. And that's certainly what TLC does in its first episode, particularly, which is kind of a conversation about all these ideas. There's very much a sense of, you know, people thinking through these things in a kind of in a safe and kind of critical environment, which I think is really, really important. The other thing that I think is I wanted to mention is that, and this is comes up at throughout, you, you know, the, the various places that we're talking about here is is this idea of these shifts in language and these the kind of the the lack of a fixed position and the kind of the newness of of this discourse and and particularly a kind of public discourse which is engaging trans voices and uh, and ally voices um, and 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 hearing so talk about the. Um, the Eisenstein letter, which they also talk about in a really good podcast called The Film You Can't See, uh, which So was involved with for the BBC around a kind of lost Eric Jarman project, which is which is a really good podcast. There is this sense that nothing is fixed and that we are still at the beginning of beginning of a kind of discussion around this stuff in, in many, many ways. Lillian also talks about that in relation to sort of funeral parade of roses and how some of the terminologies used to describe people's identities in the film, you know, are, are, are now considered, you know, sort of homophobic as homophobic or transphobic, but also that, you know, kind of common terms have shifted and, and our understanding of common terms in terms of one of the, the terms that comes up is, is sort of gay boys. And that doesn't necessarily mean what you think it does, you know, and how, how these positions have shifted. And I just, it's a really fascinating kind of drawing attention to I think the kind of yeah that the fact that none of this is static, but also what it does highlight, which kind of goes back to what you were saying around kind of social media journalism and criticism, is that there's a kind of fixity to film studies and film criticism historically, which tries to nail things in place as soon as they're there. You know, it's the it's the it's the canon, isn't it? But it's the I, the canonical thinking of like, well, this is what a film is, and this is what it will always remain. And you know, for communities who are engaging with those texts in a variety of different ways where they're not necessarily included from the outset, be that sexuality, gender, race, um, uh, or kind of you know, trans or non-binary identities. There is a need to keep these films open to to being able to change and to our relationship to, to be able to change, which definitely sort of leads into what I want to sort of talk about in terms of Funeral Parade of Roses. But I just, I loved hearing Lillian and, and, and so talk about these ideas that, and just with the openness of, yeah, that that's where we were, this is where we are now, but not trying to fix it in the now, not trying to say, okay, this is what a trans film is. And if we say this is what it is now, it's always going to be that. It's like, where are we in the discourse? Where are we in our understanding? Where are we in our relationship to these texts and to this history of text and, and understanding that that is going to shift? And it's certainly going to shift, I think, in the next five to 10 years as more and more texts come through that have greater trans representation behind the camera and greater representation on the camera but also where there is that intangible feeling of what a trans film is which i think is is so interesting which is something something else something that sits between all these things and there's so many good points in that and i think it, what i was thinking of there was when you know the idea of film studies fixing meanings but in a, in a way i i think that that's that's 
that's the canon, isn't it? That's the history of film as well. It's not just film studies. I think in terms of the development of narrative film, stereotypes, you know, in the broadest sense of that word, word are, were, were and are kind of really useful shorthands for audiences to be able to say, okay, I don't need to, I don't need that character to be explained to me, you know, in, in any depth because I, I can see what that is. And filmmakers, I think, you know, rely on stereotypes and have done throughout the history of cinema because film is, you know, I know we have really long films now, but film, film in general is quite a short, you know, burst of story or, or ideas and, and what have you, if it's an hour and a half, two hours. So you need shorthand, you need shortcuts, don't you, to, to, to make the audience understand where you're going. You know, if you look at classical Hollywood f- film, it's very much based around the, the, the creation of stereotypes which become popularized, familiarized, and then ingrained into a, a language which moves from film to film. So if you're then saying, first of all, that stereotypes are problematic, which you know we've been critiquing for a long time now, but then also the idea that, that even what we consider psychologically realist characters are also performative to use that sort of judith butler term i i what i'm talking about there is that that there's a a level of construction here and films need to do better at three-dimensionalizing their characters and showing them as having you know good and bad side sides and we we, we, uh, uh, but that is is that is more and more difficult to or it's, it's difficult to do in light of the history of the way that that films fix meanings and you know, even in today's sort of consumerist streaming world, that the the, the the simple is is the thing that is is popular a lot of the time. So, whenever you are presented with with characters and identities and stories that are outside of those that that sort of fixity of language, that again, like I say, is related to a hundred years of c- cinema. It's it's something that needs to be again. I don't want to be condescending and say audiences need to be educated, but I think that it's part of what what we do on here or try to do on here is say that look at these films. They're doing something different. They're they're creating ideas. They're asking us to understand characters, you know, in a in a in a much more complex, nuanced, and difficult way with a lot of the films that 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 we talk about and think about and you know that's what what makes funeral parade of roses you know so fascinating and, and to anybody you know who listens to our show i really recommend you you watch it as definitely as a sort of trans-led film but also just as a great piece of cinema because it's just so amazing i think yeah i was so excited when i, I knew this film was the focus um of the, the the first episode of the tlc podcast and then and then that we were going to have Lillian's uh, introduction to the film. I saw this film a couple of years ago, and it really stuck in my mind. I remembered it, and I, so I went onto my letterbox to see when did I actually see it because it felt very vivid. Um, but I, and I thought, well, I can't actually remember when I saw it. And I saw it in 2019, and weirdly, I wrote a review on my letterbox, which I've, I don't normally do. And my review was one word, and it just said "Wow." <laughs> so that's obviously a film that had and 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 I remember watching it and 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 finding it just absolutely exhilarating as yeah as a kind of piece of as a piece of cinema but certainly as yeah this kind of kind of hybrid film which was definitely and I think I'm only saying this now like in terms of being able to articulate it better having listened to Lillian's introduction and and the the discussion of the film but kind of staking a claim for itself in terms of the different modes that it was operating in and sort of claiming 
its particular hybridity as as trans um and I, I i just find it such a wonderful film and what was you know i i, I really want to hear what you what you, you think about it as well but it weirdly it reminded me of the conversation we had about kurosawa and kind of how there's this kind of dialogue between japanese cinema and, and, and what might be termed western cinema because this comes up in lillian's introduction but but certainly throughout the film particularly it's kind of you know, interest in the imagery of the Beatles. Um, there is a real dialogue with with the West in terms of cinema and pop culture, which is it's it's kind of really fascinating because of the the way that there's there's filmmaking involved in it. It's very cinematic in its construction, and it's kind of doing that doing that kind of claiming of other identities and other kind of areas of culture for the trans community in a very live way it, which I, I just i just find it i think it's brilliant and it's so so beautiful to look at great music amazing performances and just got an energy that is so so unique yeah i love that i love this film uh, yeah definitely the, the the western nuance of interrelationship i think is is really is really interesting but i mean to me it just it just brought up where we're going in terms of this soft conservatism around sexuality and it just kind of occurred to me in like in today's film culture when we see so many comments about i don't want to see sex in movies you know why is there a sex scene in this movie if it's not pushing the plot forward and all of those kinds of things and i think what often doesn't get kind of talked about in that discussion is that that's actually yeah it's a really clandestine way of actually shutting down discussion of non-normative sexualities and a representation of them and the openness of that and the and the idea that even if it's uh, you know it, it might be related to sort of queer identity trans identity homosexuality all of those things but even kind of the problematics of defining heterosexuality you know if you look at the you know a lot of trans-led cinema it's pointing to the hypocrisies of often male characters who define themselves as heterosexual but are then engaging you know, often problematically with uh, trans characters. So, and, and this, like just at the Berlin Film Festival, there were so many films about crisis in masculinity and, and most of those films are also crisis in sexuality as well. So it's interesting how a film that, that, that sort of, you know, this far back in the past, back to the 60s, is, is just seems so radical and still so fresh. And maybe it's because we have this, this discourse, this creeping discourse of, um, shutting down of conversations around sexuality, I think, and it, it feels it seems to be something that's rearing its head that kind of does, you know, every every kind of couple of decades. You know, it seems, you know, yeah. Like I like soft conservatism is a really interesting phrase, and and a lot of it is, like you say, it's not a nuanced discussion because a lot of the a lot of the the way that that those ideologies are smuggled into the conversation is through representation and saying oh no we can't possibly have you know women seen in this way we can't have you know you know sort of queer characters seen in this way you know which is not necessarily coming from those communities but from a yeah a kind of conservative you know sort of almost like someone standing at the back of an activist mob sort of trying to subliminally insert uh, insert an agenda um and sort of and direct it into a, into a different space which i find yeah i find fascinating. and yeah just there's a real freedom to funeral parade of roses in its depiction of a community where the identities are very broad and the relationships between 
different facets of a kind of tw- a trans, non-binary, or queer community are sat alongside. I, mean, I think it's, it's it's fair to in, in order to sort of you know that the, the, there is a sense of sex work relationships to a lot of the the dynamics in the film, but the the clients are not traditionally represented either you know there's a there's there's almost like a safe space carved out for so many of the characters obviously there's 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 violence and there's there's kind of trauma in the film as well but but it's not about that it's about it's about the entirety of their existence which includes horrific acts but it also includes these kind of moments of tenderness and kind of community that are yeah that are sadly radical you know it's um yeah it's it's such a fantastic film yeah definitely Definitely check it out if you uh, haven't seen it. It is available to, to stream and in a decent condition as well. The one I w- watched on Amazon Prime was was anyway. Um, so, Neil, thanks very much for your input there. That was a really great discussion. I hope I hope we've managed to add to the debate there in our in our own way. But obviously, the the you know the main portion of the of the podcast um, was the important thing. And I just encourage all of our audience to go and listen to the full. Um, episodes the full I think there's three out at the moment there's one more to come of of TLC because it, it you know that is that is the audience that is the community that is is speaking there and I think you know you'll 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 get the the sort of clarity of purpose and and, and the diversity of ideas you know in, in in even more sort of in-depth way by listening to those episodes absolutely yeah we are now going to head over to our bonus after party where we will be talking uh, about yeah Berlin and some some recent film watching as well um, but yeah a, a big thanks to so uh, pronouns they them pronouns she her for their time and yeah kind of providing us with an opportunity to, to put these ideas out into the world in our own way really great to, to, to have them both on the podcast we will catch you next time but for now this has been the cinematologist podcast thanks for listening you